Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's episode is a big update on the murder of Egypt Covington. For those of you who are newer listeners, Egypt's case is one we did a four-part series on in 2020. Egypt Covington was shot and killed in her own home on June 22, 2017, and her case went unsolved for more than three years before the Michigan State Police took it over in August of 2020 and solved it in three months. While we knew the names of the three people charged with her murder, we didn't know much else. Until this week when they had a two and a half day preliminary exam. If you haven't listened to her series, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. Egypt was an incredible human being, and she deserves the justice which is finally happening after more than three years. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Let's start off by explaining who exactly the defendants are and how they know each other. There's Tim, Shane, and Shandon. Tim and Shane are brothers, but kind of not really. I put together a family tree for Tim when he was first arrested, and frankly, the family tree gets a little twisty. The two aren't brothers by blood, but through marriage and other marriages that wound up leaving them growing up as brothers. Shandon is Tim's cousin. That one's pretty simple. Now let's talk about what a preliminary exam is. A preliminary exam is where the prosecution presents the most compelling evidence against the defendant or defendants in this case to hopefully convince the judge that there's enough probable cause for them to stand trial for what they've been charged with. In the end, the judge will make a final decision as to whether or not there's enough probable cause for the defendants to stand trial and face a jury of their peers who will ultimately hold the fate of the rest of their lives in their hands. The preliminary exam in Egypt's case pieced together how the Michigan State Police were able to track down who they believe is responsible for her murder and how they believe it happened. This is a case that I know so many listeners are personally and emotionally invested in, and if we're being honest here, this episode is going to be heartbreaking. The first person on the stand was Arthur Richardson. What we got from his testimony was that he went to jail on June 7th, 2017, and was released on November 14th, 2017. We know Egypt was killed on June 22nd, so he couldn't have done it. We learned that when he went to court the morning of the 7th, he brought his buddy Shandon with him, something that he did whenever he went to court in case he went to jail. There was someone there to take possession of his belongings, a learned skill. When Arthur Richardson was taken to jail that day, the keys to his blue truck were handed over to Shandon and Shandon took custody of it. Inside of Arthur's blue truck was Arthur's phone. Arthur Richardson's blue truck was actually registered to his brother, Arthur Greenlee. How there are two brothers with different last names and the same first name is over my head, but that's where we are. Arthur Richardson's phone number ended in 4931. We'll refer to that phone number as phone number four because that's easier to remember. After Arthur Richardson went to jail, his top five most frequently contacted numbers for phone number four changed, and the most frequently contacted number after Arthur went to jail was Shandon's wife at the time, and the most frequently pinged location after Arthur went to jail 37% of the time was at the home Shandon lived in. While we're talking about phone numbers, 
Tim's parole officer between September 22, 2016 and September 4, 2018 also testified, and he said that in early June of 2017, the number he had for Tim was a number ending in 8723. We'll refer to this as phone number 8 because, again, it's easier to remember. Tim wound up giving his parole officer another phone number in early June of 2017, one of the four he had while on parole. But Tim's Facebook account was registered under phone number eight, and he gave phone number eight out to people in Facebook messages in August of 2017, which is two months after Egypt was killed. All of this may seem really random, but it's all going to mean something later, so just hold on to it while this unfolds. Next on the stand was Antiana. That's Arthur Richardson's baby mama and on-again, off-again girlfriend for the last 11 years, which sounds exhausting. Basically, she confirmed that Shandon was in possession of Arthur Richardson's blue truck and his cell phone, phone number four, while Arthur was in jail. Both Arthur Richardson and Antiana didn't seem to want to incriminate Shandon while they were on the stand in front of him, but their interviews with police were pretty chatty. Again, I know this seems really random, but the prosecutor did a phenomenal job building up information in the order it needed to be understood, so stay patient. All of this will matter. Next up was Tim's girlfriend, Danielle. Tim was the first person charged with Egypt's murder and is Shandon's cousin. Danielle said that she knew Shane, the other defendant in this case, because he's Tim's brother by marriage and that she knew Shandon because he's Tim's cousin, basically just confirming the connection between the three of them. She said that Shane, Tim's brother, lived in a house on Judd Road in Belleville, Michigan, and that she'd been there quite a few times with Tim. That particular house on Judd Road is only 3.6 miles away from Egypt's house on Hall Road. It's basically a straight shot down Sumter Road. We also learn that Tim does low-key tattoos out of a woman named Nicole's house in Toledo, Ohio. I know that sounds far away because it's a different state, but it's actually less than an hour drive. Her testimony continues over a few topics, and the next topic on the list is the fact that Tim had twin girls born on June 5th, 2017. They were premature and in the NICU, and they were not born to his girlfriend, Danielle. She said that he tended to visit them four to five times a week and sometimes in the evenings after work. But just one week later, on June 12th, 2017, Tim and Shane got into a pretty bad car accident. That would have been 10 days before Egypt was killed. Both Tim and Shane were hospitalized, but Tim left against medical advice with cords literally still attached to him. Shane was released sometime later. Danielle mentioned to police that Shane was playing hurt for a lawsuit. The twins, the accident, and Egypt's murder all happened in the span of 17 days. Now, remember that girl, Nicole, the one whose house Danielle said Tim used to do tattoos at? She was next up on the witness stand. Nicole is Shandon's aunt. Again, Shandon is Tim's cousin. She says that on June 22, 2017, both Tim and Shandon and some of her sisters were at her house when she got off work around 4 p.m. Tim was, of course, doing tattoos. Tattooing Shandon, nonetheless. Tim uploaded a picture of the tattoo he did on Shandon to one of his Facebook pages, and Shandon uploaded the piece he'd just gotten done by Tim to his Facebook page. The bottom line here was that they were clearly together the afternoon before Egypt was killed. 
Nicole adds that when it started getting dark out, she asked everyone to leave her house and says that Tim and Shandon walked out of there together. The next few witnesses were Egypt's friends and family, and I think we need to acknowledge here how incredibly difficult this had to be for them. For three years, they've wanted justice for Egypt, a woman they knew and loved, and it was finally happening, but they were having to speak in front of the three men accused of committing her murder literally just feet away. Egypt's friend, Lindsay, took the stand. She's known Egypt since the sixth grade. She's the last known person to see Egypt alive. The two took a yoga class together on June 22nd, and it ended around 8.45 p.m. Lindsay said that Egypt was heading home to do some cleaning because Egypt's boyfriend, Curtis, was going to be moving in with her soon. Lindsay did not talk to Egypt after they parted ways in the parking lot of the yoga studio. After the court established the last in-person interaction with Egypt, Lindsay talked about the layout of Egypt's house. It was a ranch house split into two apartments. There's one main door that leads to a hallway, and in that hallway, there's a door to the left that leads to Egypt's apartment, and there's a door on the right that leads to her neighbor's apartment. Egypt's neighbors were Stephen and Megan, whom Egypt was good friends with, and were out of town when Egypt was murdered. They were at an event called Electric Forest. Egypt had been taking care of Stephen and Megan's dogs while they were out of town, and Lindsay stepped in and took care of the dogs on June 24th, the day after Egypt was found in her apartment. While Lindsay was in Stephen and Megan's apartment, she noticed three or four five-gallon buckets of marijuana shake. This will be important later. Next on the stand was Caitlin. Caitlin is Egypt's adopted sister who's known her since she was 15. In her testimony, we hear a lot about a Snapchat that Egypt posted to her story around 11 p.m. on June 22nd. We only know about that Snapchat because when Caitlin found out about Egypt's murder, she rushed over to her house and remembered the Snapchat from the night before. It was a photo of Egypt's TV with the caption, I effing love this movie. Caitlin took a screenshot just in case. The screenshot was taken around 9 p.m. and it said it was posted 22 hours prior. Because Caitlin saved this Snapchat, the timeline of Egypt's murder was narrowed down to at least happening after 11 p.m. on the 22nd. It's believed that's the last known interaction Egypt ever made before she was killed. Another person to take the stand was Stephen. Stephen was Egypt's neighbor and friend who lived in the other half of the ranch house that Lindsay described. He notes that, as Lindsay said, he was out of town at Electric Forest when Egypt was killed and had left a day prior to her murder. Egypt had actually gone with Stephen and Megan to Electric Forest before, but she didn't go this year because she'd recently gotten a new job and had already gone on a family vacation and didn't want to miss any more work. The day Stephen left for Electric Forest, he was having his lawn mowed by a company owned by one of his friends. And this is where the bombshells in this case start happening, and all of the pieces start to come together. On June 21st, 2017, the day before Egypt was murdered, her neighbor Stephen, who lived in the other half of the house her apartment was in, was having the lawn mowed. Shane, the brother of Tim, who's the cousin of Shandon, worked for the lawn care company that was mowing their grass that day. 
From the day Shane was arrested, from the day Shandon was arrested, everyone wondered what the connection was between the three of them and Egypt, and that was it. Shane worked for the lawn care company that mowed the grass at her house. The connection to the suspects and the victim in a murder investigation was the grass. Stephen went on to testify that they didn't always lock their main entryway door that led to the hallway, which led to his apartment on the right and Egypt's apartment on the left. He also said that both his and Megan's door and Egypt's door usually stayed open. They were friends, they'd hang out in one apartment, cook in another, eat in the other, etc. It seemed like a pretty open flow between the apartments by the way he described it. Stephen talks about a legal marijuana business he owns in a facility separate from his house, but says that in early 2017, some extract for edibles went missing from his apartment, which was in a Home Depot bucket. Three ounces of weed also went missing from one of his cabinets. This will be important to remember, literally all of it. The last of Egypt's friends and family called to testify was her boyfriend at the time, Curtis. Curtis is the one who found Egypt in her apartment around 7.15 p.m. on June 23rd, and his testimony was heartbreaking to watch. He had to recount the entire day of the 22nd, which included Egypt leaving his apartment that morning to go to work and them texting goodnight around 10 p.m. when he went to bed. He also went over the day of the 23rd where he tried over and over again to get in contact with her but couldn't and went to her apartment only to find that she'd been murdered. He cried as he talked about it and I think we all cried with him. He had to talk about all of this while sitting in front of and looking into the eyes of the three men charged with the murder of his girlfriend. Curtis said he didn't know Egypt's neighbors, Stephen and Megan, very well, but was planning on moving in with Egypt when his lease ran up in about 10 months. At this point in the preliminary exam, everything gets really evidence and law enforcement heavy. Sergeant Reaney from Van Buren Township Police took the stand. He was a patrol officer at the time of Egypt's murder and a certified evidence tech who responded to Egypt's house to collect evidence. While on the scene, Rini collected a shell casing, the Christmas lights Egypt was bound with, a marijuana pipe, a black phone, a brown charger, and a couch cushion that a bullet had been fired through. Pillows and similar items, such as couch cushions, are sometimes used as silencers for guns. It's not incredibly efficient, but people who watch movies and TV might think that they are. I think it's also important to note here that they only collected one phone, but Egypt had two, a work phone and a personal phone. The only one they collected was her work phone. Sergeant Rini also took photos of the crime scene while he was there, and in one of them, a cabinet door is open, which really seemed to stand out after hearing that Egypt's neighbor Stephen had had three ounces of weed go missing from his cabinet just months prior. While we learned a lot of new and gut-wrenching information from Rini's testimony, it honestly didn't seem like he'd prepared at all. When he was asked questions, he kept having to say that he'd have to look at his report and was eventually given a copy, and the defense really went after him because of it. And while the defense was doing that, it's mentioned that Egypt's phone was deleted by mishandling of evidence. Excuse me, what?! How in the wily fuck was Egypt's phone deleted while in police 
custody. Whew. Next on the stand was Detective Street from Michigan State Police, and he was a champion. I repeat, a champion. He got straight to business and had clearly prepared for his testimony. He started talking about CCTV footage that had been recovered from the Sitco gas station at the end of Egypt Street. The CCTV footage was from the night she was killed. CCTV footage that Van Buren Township Police had the entire time. In it, he saw a blue truck following a Chrysler 300 pass by the gas station around 11.40 p.m. from the direction of Judd Road on Sumter Road and turn onto Hull Road. Shane lived on Judd Road. Egypt lived on Hull Road. And you'd take Sumter Road to get from Judd Road to Hull Road. At 11.43 p.m., the blue truck comes back into view of the Sitco gas station from the direction of Egypt's apartment this time, and they do a three-point turn, turn around, and go back in the direction of Egypt's apartment. The Chrysler 300 had driven away at this point. At 11.49 p.m., the blue truck is seen again passing the Sitco from the direction of Egypt's apartment and driving back down Sumter Road and the direction of Judd Road. Detective Street went full-blown CSI on this blue truck in the video. He took note of the shapes of the lights, a light that was out, badging on the door, the front license plate, and the exact color of the truck from the manufacturer. And he tracked it down to being none other than the blue truck Arthur Richardson had driven to court on June 7th, 2017. The one registered to his brother Arthur Greenlee and the one Shandon had driven away on June 17th with Arthur's phone, phone number four, still inside. Like I said, this was all going to come together. Law enforcement made contact with Arthur Richardson, who told them where the blue truck currently was and gave them authorization to tow it to Michigan to be seized. I mean, after all, Arthur Richardson was in jail when Egypt was killed, so he couldn't have done it, even if his truck was seen on CCTV by Egypt's house that night. But wouldn't you know, that's not the only tie there is. Arthur Richardson's phone, phone number four, the one he left in his truck when he went to jail, the phone that most frequently called Shandon's wife after Arthur went to jail, and the phone that was most frequently used at Shandon's home after Arthur went to jail, was geolocated as being at Egypt's house or on her property between 11.45 p.m. and 11.49 p.m. the night she was killed. The road was not a part of this geomapping. It literally had to be either in her apartment or in her yard. And if you recall, at 11.49 p.m., you see Arthur's blue truck passing by that Sitco gas station just one-tenth of a mile from Egypt's house. Phone number four and Arthur's blue truck were pinging and being videotaped at the same time they were at the Sitco gas station and Egypt's house. Whatever happened to Egypt, they believe it happened between 11.43 p.m. when that blue truck did the three-point turn to head back towards Egypt's house and 11.49 p.m. when it passed the Sitco gas station driving away from it. Phone number four geolocated at Egypt's apartment in between that time frame. Six minutes. Everything happened in six minutes.
Next on the stand was Special Agent Gavin with the FBI. He's on the Cellular Analysis Survey Team. He explained how cell towers work and then went to town on what he found. Egypt's phone left the yoga studio at 8.45 p.m. the night she was murdered. At 9.20 p.m., her phone starts connecting to a tower by her house. After Tim and Shandon left Nicole's house on the 22nd, phone number 4 and phone number 8 both pinged together on I-75 and 275 towards Shane's house on Judd Road. From 11.10 p.m. to 11.30 p.m., the phones ping off of a tower that covers Shane's house on Judd Road, and phone number 4 actually literally geolocates at that exact house. Between 11.41 and 11.42 p.m., the two phones ping by Egypt's house. Between 11.45 and 11.49 p.m., phone 4 geolocates in an area that can only be either inside Egypt's apartment or on her lawn. At 11.49 p.m., phone number 4 and Egypt's own personal cell phone, the one that wasn't taken into evidence, starts moving away from her apartment and towards Judd Road. At 11.59 p.m., Egypt's phone pings near 275, and just 30 seconds later, phone number 4 pings in the same area. I-75 is the route Tim and Shandon took from Toledo, Ohio to Belleville, Michigan, where Shane and Egypt both lived, just 3.6 miles apart from each other. Egypt's phone stayed in that one location until around 4 a.m. on the 24th when they believe it ran out of battery. It's assumed it was thrown out of a vehicle and it has never been recovered. The Michigan State Police and the FBI pieced these phone records together flawlessly and frankly pretty irrefutably. The only real defense the defense had was that phone four belonged to a guy who was in jail and that just because a phone pings somewhere doesn't mean you know who's using it. But the interrogation of the defendant, Shane Evans, was going to put pretty much any doubt there was to rest. The interrogation of Shane Evans begins and you hear Shane telling the detective that Tim Shandon and a third guy came by the night of the 22nd trying to get some weed, but he didn't have any. However, he knew that Stephen, Egypt's neighbor who used the lawn care company Shane worked for, was going to be out of town and that his house would be empty and they could get some weed from there. This is the first we hear of a fourth person being involved. Shane says that the fourth person's name is Art and we don't know who the fuck Art is. Shane says that he told Tim, Shandon, and Art that Stephen lives in a really long ranch-style house and that it had one main door. When you open that door, you see a hallway and Steve's door will be on the right, and that's where they can get the weed. Shane and the girl he was with that night hopped into a Chrysler 300, and Tim, Shane, and Art followed behind them in a blue truck. As he took them down the road, he pointed to Stephen's house and told them to go to the apartment on the right. Shane says he then drove away. That blue truck turned around at the Sitco gas station at 11.43 p.m. and went back towards Egypt's house. And about 10 to 15 minutes later, Shane gets a text message from Tim that says, Whoops, wrong door. I'm sorry, whoops? Whoops is something you say when you drop food on the ground. 
Eventually, he says he found out Egypt had been killed and knew deep down what had happened, and that at one point, Tim asked him if he wanted to know what happened, and Shane said no, basically that he didn't want to be involved. But he already was involved. The following day around noon, so about 12 hours after Egypt was killed and seven hours before she was found, another detective, Detective Plummer, testified that phone number four searched how to turn Shake into Bud. Going back to Lindsay's testimony, she said that she saw five-gallon buckets of Shake in Stephen's apartment when she went to take care of the dogs on the 24th. Phone number four also pulled up an article from USA Today called The Ones That Got Away. I pulled up the article myself, and it's about criminals who flee to other states because they don't think the state they committed the crime in will pay to extradite them back. And frankly, according to the article, this happens way more often than I'd like to believe. Shandon did cross state lines. He left Michigan after he allegedly killed Egypt and went back to Ohio. However, the state police had absolutely no problem extraditing his goblin ass back to Michigan. It might have taken more than three years, but he's finally facing justice now. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. The last bombshell dropped by the prosecutor was that when the Michigan State Police ran the DNA from the Christmas lights Egypt was bound with, it came back with a hit to none other than Timothy Moore. Now, it needs to be further confirmed, but that's a pretty big deal. Throughout the entire testimony of Egypt's friends and family, the defense had made constant references to the fact that no one had ever seen Egypt with Tim, had never heard of Tim, and even went as far as to say that Tim wasn't her type because he wasn't an older white man, which seemed ignorant as fuck, by the way. That entire defense shit the bed when Tim's DNA was found in Egypt's apartment, and not just in her apartment— it was on an item used in the commission of her murder. Good luck trying to explain that away. The defense also asked a lot of questions about Kenny, seeming to take a whack at the some other dude did it defense. And the tune of Kenny really started to change at this point. We heard from Egypt's friends and family that Egypt was friends with Kenny at the time of her murder and that he'd recently helped her with a down payment on a car and she was still on his car insurance either when she was killed or right before she was killed. Curtis specifically stated that he didn't think Kenny was stalking or following Egypt. They noted that they'd originally thought it was Kenny in the beginning because of information given to them by the Van Buren Township Police and because of very specific questioning by Van Buren Township Police. 
The police department that had the CCTV footage from the gas station the entire time. The department that the prosecution said had to have their officers give DNA samples because of mishandled evidence. The department that had the DNA swabs from the Christmas lights that eventually came back as a hit for Tim. The department that apparently didn't geofence Egypt's apartment until 2019. And in that geofencing, had phone number four in it. We went over Kenny's whereabouts extensively in Egypt's series in 2020, including literal GPS tracking of his movements from his phone that night and witnesses who were there with him. I've personally spoken to one of the bar owners from one of the bars Kenny was at that night, and this bar owner told me that Van Buren Township Police had asked them for CCTV footage from the night of the 22nd. He says he got it for them, but they never picked it up. Yet still, Kenny was villainized for years as the man everyone thought killed Egypt. Another defense strategy was talking about the accident that Tim and Shane had gotten into 10 days prior to Egypt's murder, essentially seeming to imply that they would have been too injured to commit a murder. Blah, blah, blah. Explain Shane's interrogation, the CCTV footage, and the DNA then. The prosecutor and the defense rested their case on Thursday, March 25th, and the decision was given to the judge as to whether there was enough probable cause to take these three assholes to court to stand trial for what they've been charged with in connection to Egypt's murder. And it didn't take hours. It didn't take days. The judge quickly decided that there was enough probable cause, and these fuckers are going to trial in front of a jury who will decide whether or not they'll ever breathe another breath of fresh air so long as they each shall live. I expect it's going to take quite a while for them to actually go to trial between motions hearings, status hearings, and evidentiary hearings, but when it does happen, I'll be here to update you. For all photos and maps pertaining to Egypt's entire case and my live updates from the preliminary hearing this week, check out her highlights at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern where we talk about her case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.